Welcome to TheOpenWord.org, featuring the teaching ministries of Alan Schaefer. Currently, Alan is serving as an adjunct professor of theology at Moody Bible Institute, as well as leading almost weekly classes with his local church. With over 3,000 hours of recording since 1988, TheOpenWord.org contains theological studies, biblical surveys, homemade videos, and even small glimpses into Alan's personal life. We invite you to a source for verse-by-verse exposition of nearly the entire Holy Bible at TheOpenWord.org. Thank you. Well, let's, let's look at uh, First and Second Corinthians. All right. Um, I think it's important before we begin the study of a book to have a little bit of an idea of the background of the book. It's always helpful to know to whom was the book written and why was it written and, and the occasion, the date, things like that. Um, when did Paul, for those of you who took the last class, when did Paul find himself in Corinth? What missionary journey? Second, Second missionary journey, right? Mm-hmm. He went over to Neapolis. From there he went up to Thessalonica. Got kicked out of that town, went down to Berea, got kicked out of Berea, went to Athens, ran into the people at Mars Hill. After Athens, he made his way down to Corinth, where he again met up with Timothy, whom he sent back to Thessalonica to see how things were going. And that was the occasion for writing the books of First and Second Thessalonians. He wrote them from Corinth um, to deal with issues in, in the church of Thessalonica. How long was he in Thessalonica? Do you remember? No, three weeks. Yeah, only three weeks, three Sabbaths, and then he got ran out of town. Um, where was he for three years? Ephesus, right. Okay. Now, how long was he in Corinth? Remember that one? 18 months, about 18 months in Corinth. And uh, so Corinth, outside of Ephesus, had the longest tenure of Paul actually being there um, and ministering to them. Um, now, Secularly, what do we know about Corinth? Morally bad. <laughs> uh, morally really bad. <laughs> and uh, the reason it was morally really bad is because it was a, it was a very um, important trade route city. Um, in those days, um, those cities that were on trade routes were deemed very important. They were strategic cities. Um, and if you remember... Uh, a, a map of, um, of Greece, sort of. You've got Greece coming down, and then you got the Peloponnesus here, like this. And Corinth was right here on the, the neck, the little isthmus there. What was the sister city on the other side? Remember? Athens. No. Here. Athens is here. Oh, you're looking at the map. He cheated. <laughs> All right. Sincrea is the one on the other side, and Corinth is the one on the north side. All right. So they they were sort of sister cities, but Corinth was the bigger one of both of them. And uh, what they had actually is um, instead of the ships sailing all the way around that area of Greece, what they would do is they would dock at Corinth, and they would be dragged up on land by slaves who were especially that was their job, and they took these log rollers and, and rolled basically the ship across this little isthmus here and dropped it in the water on the other side, and it would save them a significant amount of time. Instead of sailing all the way around the Peloponnesus there, they would just 
go right across it. Hmm? Yeah. What's your map show? Athens is right here. Athens is sort of in the middle. In the MacArthur Study Bible, page 1844. No, the, the yeah, yeah. The the Athens is sort of in the middle of the of um of this. I don't, yeah, I have one here. You, you, yeah, Athens is in the middle. All right. Okay. Well, we'll help you. We'll help you read a map. Okay. It, here, what's showing? Yeah, what's showing? Corn right here. Athens is over in the middle. It's way over. It's not on the other side of the isthmus. It's over in the middle. See Athens? Yes. It's right there. And so where Corinth. is uh Sincrea is just just on the other side of the isthmus. It's a very small isthmus. It's only a you know, just a couple of miles. I can't remember how many miles wide it is, but it's very very tiny there. All right. Um go Google it. Yeah, I Google Google that and you can see how you can see exactly where it's at. But what was important about Corinth is of course any trade coming from the north down to the south went through Corinth. And all the shipping from Rome went through Corinth as it made its way across the Mediterranean Sea. So it was a very metropolitan city. A lot of people, a lot of, a lot of things going on there. The other thing about Corinth is that it was a morally depraved city. It was one of those port cities. And of course you had a lot of the sailors and a lot of people coming in there. And as far as moral depravity, it ranked up there about the, as high as you could get. Um, some, I think Chuck Swindoll even said they came up with a word in ancient times called Corinthianize. And it means to act like a Corinthian, to act in a debauched, drunken, immoral manner. All right. Um, they actually made a word out of this, a, a verb out of being a Corinthian. So it was a very immoral city. And yet, as it says in Acts, God said, I have a lot of people there. There are people there that are that are part of that are that are elect and I want Paul to reach them. I want Paul to preach there. And Paul did for 18 months in this city um, in Greece. Now, there's one other thing and it's going to be important to our discussions later on is that just north of here, right about in here somewhere, you had another city called Delphi. Delphi. What do you know about Delphi? The Oracle of Delphi was it or was there. That was Delphi. And what it was, it was a mystery religion. Um, one of the, the uh, explain this a little bit. The mystery religions of those days were basically um, centered around secret knowledge. Knowledge known only to those who are part of the religion. It's sort of like masonry today. I had a big fight with my in-laws on masonry because my brother-in-law is really deep into that. And I told them it's a cult, and they got all mad and bent out of shape about it, thinking it's a Christian organization, but it's not. It's a mystery religion, basically. I said, why do they call it a Masonic temple? That should Doesn't that, like, hint? Hopefully, not. I'm sorry if anybody's a Mason in here. I don't mean to beat on you, but it's bad news. Masonry is. Huh? Eastern Stars for the Ladies. Eastern Stars for the Ladies. And, you know, Donna got a 
pencil from the great high priestess of the Eastern Star. And, and they're sitting there with a straight face telling me it's not religious. And they call this woman the great high priestess or whatever. And I said, come on, you know. Yeah, don't don't get me don't get me going there. But the idea of mystery religion, it comes from the Greek word gnosis or gnostic. Gnosis, that means knowledge. Okay? This is knowledge. This is the Greek word for knowledge. And the idea behind these mystery religions is that there was secret knowledge that was known only to people who were initiated into this. And and there's all kinds of these mystery religions. There's not just one of them, there's a ton of them. There are all kinds of different brands and different stripes and all of that stuff. And um, in, in the first century of the church, some of these mystery religions leaked into the church. All right. You had a mystery religion that taught, for example, that Christ was not a physical human being. He was a he was a spirit being. He was never physical. He was not a physical being. He was spirit in form. It's called docetic Gnosticism. He, he was not material. He was a spirit being. So what went around Palestine was a spirit being, because after all, matter is evil, spirit is good. There's no way God, who's pure spirit, would ever take upon himself a material body that's evil. So he wouldn't do that. So they had that stripe. And John wrote First John to deal with that, right? That which we have seen and heard, we touched, we handled. There's no ghost here. This is a real live living human being that that we saw and we handled and we looked upon. And the word look upon there, theolomai, means to, to look and gaze upon intently. It's not to take a glance, it's to examine thoroughly. He said, I we saw him for a period of, this is no ghost we're dealing with. And then there's another brand of Gnosticism, Serinthianism, that taught that Christ was just, Jesus was just this nice guy walking around Palestine, and the Christ spirit came upon him and empowered him for a period of time. Prior to his crucifixion, the Christ spirit left, so all that died on the cross was just a human Jesus. It was not the Son of God, um, a denial of the deity of Christ. There's all these brands of this stuff, but one popular brand was this oracle at Delphi, and what you would do is if you, you, would, if you went to visit the oracle, you go into this... Uh, you know, you go and find the secret of life or you have some question you want to ask this oracle. And uh, you go into the smoke-filled room and this woman will be sitting on this stool with all the smoke and incense and all of that. And you'd ask your question, whatever it is, and she would answer in some kind of cryptic message or whatever. Um, and then you go out and spend the rest of your life trying to figure out what the answer was that she said to you. But this is a very popular thing. And, and this is important later on, one of the main tenets of these Delphi, Delphic mystery religion was ecstatic speech, tongues. That was part of their religion. Um, and many scholars have made the connection that a lot of the confusion on tongues that you find in Corinthians can be traced directly back to the oracle at Delphi and these mystery religions that were part of that culture um, that, that they had. And we'll, we'll develop that when we get to chapter 13, 14, 12, 13, and 14. But this is the, what I'm trying to do here is set up where this church was. This church was in the middle of a lot of false religion, a lot of idolatry. Um, they had a lot of money. It was a very debauched, immoral place. Um, th th this is a tough place to be a Christian. This is a tough place to be a Christian. And um, of all the churches that Paul wrote to and dealt with, this church had the most known problems of any of them. 
All right. Most of the other churches were, were dealing with persecution, right? This church was dealing with purity. All right. And uh, it was a very difficult situation. So that that's sort of the history of around this church at Corinth. And it was founded right around A.D. 50, give or take. Um, we know that because we know when Gallio was pro-council of Achaia. Achaia is the southern part of Greece. It's a Roman province. And Gallio was the proconsul. We know when he was there. And so we have an idea. He was there from uh, 51 to 52 A.D. And if Paul had been there for 18 months before he was brought before the council, he would have, he would have been there sometime late 49, 50, right around in there is when Paul was in Corinth and when this church was um, was founded. Okay. Um, very early on, there's a lot of of quotes from the early church fathers about this particular book, First and Second Corinthians. Um, Clement of Rome, um, he's one of the early church fathers. He quotes this book saying it was written by the blessed apostle Paul to the Corinth. Um, Polycarp, who was a disciple of John, quotes this as canonical and, and uses it. Um, Justin Martyr. I mean, and, and the reason this is important is because it shows that very early on in the church, um, this book was seen as being supernatural in origin. It was seen as a canonical book. You understand canonization was not something done by a vote, whether it was done something done by recognition. People said, you know, we have all of these books and we recognize these as being a cut above the rest. And, and it was universally accepted. Um, first and second Corinthians almost universally accepted by all the early church fathers as canonical and as written by Paul. Paul says um, he wrote this on, on several occasions. It talks, Paul talks himself as being the writer. Um, it coincides very clearly with the book of Acts, the event in the books of Acts. And it's a very clear picture of what was going on in Corinth. The issues that they struggled with in Corinth were exactly what you would expect from that historical time period. And quite honestly, it's the same things we struggle with today. You'll find that as we go through the book of Corinthians, that there you know what? Nothing's changed. <laughs> you know, we've got different labels and we have a different situation, but it's the same old problem, same old issues. Um, we already talked about the um, the uh, the founding of it. Um, it was situated on two great, great trade routes. Um, the one was the that connected the Adriatic and the Aegean Seas right here for shipping. And the other one was down that way. Um, it's right by Athens. It's very close to Athens. Um, so it was a, it was a, a center of um, commerce, of trade. Um, it was a very wealthy city. A lot of money. Lots of money there. Um, think of Hollywood or Los Angeles. I mean, just lots of money. Because of all the trade going through there and all the taxes that were levied on the ships as they were going across the isthmus. Um, there's a lot of money there. And of course, where there's a lot of money, there's a lot of vice. All right. Um, another thing that was there is a great temple of Aphrodite. Who's that? Sea goddess. No, not the sea goddess. Huh? Goddess of love, Venus or Aphrodite. Um, and of course, part of the, the, the religious worship experience of the temple of Aphrodite was prostitution. Um, the Greeks thought that, uh, that when you engaged in sexual relations with a temple prostitute, you were close to God. Now, that's popular religion. 
Um, that would be a popular religion today, right? You know, the closest, the more sex you have, the closer you are to God. Boy, you know that. In fact, there's a guy that came up with a religion like that. He did actually I saw it on on TV. Um, he had a he came up with a religion, and his wife was the high priestess or whatever. You know, and that's you know just <laughs> that's more information you probably need to know. But anyways, it was it was a popular um, religion back then, and they were taught that that you know this was an act of worship to go and have sex with a prostitute, and there were male and female prostitutes in this temple and it was a massive temple so at night you know all the streets would be just full of all these prostitutes coming down and helping all of the people there worship um, it was also a host to what's called the Ithmian Games that was sort of like the Olympics of those days and so it's interesting as you read through the um, writings of Paul he has a lot of sports illusions right he talks about beating his body he talks about running the race he talks about boxing you know, and all that stuff. Um, he was a sports nut, I think Paul was. He would enjoy modern-day football, probably. Um, except for the game last Monday. Yeah. That wasn't a game, was it? No. Yeah, that wasn't a game. Um, yeah, that wasn't a game. But uh, he, would en he enjoyed sports. And uh, this was a very, you know, back then when you won one of these things, it was a big deal to win this. Um, in fact, if you won these games, if I remember correctly, you were tax-exempt. You didn't have to pay taxes. The rest of your life, that would be pretty good, wouldn't it? Um, you, you know, it was it was a great honor to win um, these athletic competitions, and Corinth, of course, was the center of this. Um, when was it written? It was this Corinthians. <clears throat> you got to understand something about Corinthians. We there there are actually four known books that were written to Corinth. Four known letters that Paul wrote to Corinth. All right. We have letters number two and number four. But there's a first Corinthians that we don't have. And then there's a harsh Corinthians that was in the middle of first and second Corinthians that we do not have. But these are apparently the second and fourth books that were written. So Paul wrote four letters to the church at Corinth. Um, and when would he when did he write this this first one? This was written from Ephesus. And he would have been in Ephesus about A.D. 53, 54, somewhere around in there. Um, and that's when he wrote this book back to Corinth. Um, and uh, when, he, when Paul was in, when Paul was in uh, Ephesus, who visited him, remember? Who came and visited Paul when he was in Ephesus? The elders. Well, the elder, well he visited the elders, but what... Couple, what famous couple? Priscilla and Aquila, right? They came over and they visited Paul. And um, apparently what happened is Paul, of course, not Paul, but Apollos, was driven out of Rome. And so to get from Rome over, he took the ship over to Corinth, went across the land and took another ship over to Ephesus. And uh, no doubt he visited the Corinthian church. And one of the things he brought back to Paul was there was some fracturing going on there. There were some problems. In fact, remember when we get to it here in 1 Corinthians 1, some say I'm Paul, and I'm of Apollos, and I'm of Cephas, and I'm of Christ. Um, there were some, there were some uh, personality cults going on in Corinth. And, of course, Paul, Apollos brings this back. Um, 
Why did Paul write 1 Corinthians? Well, he'd already written a letter to Corinth. We don't have that. 1 Corinthians 5, 9 talks about a letter that he had already written. So 1 Corinthians 5, 9 says there's always a le- already a letter he had written, and we have 1 Corinthians, and we know that's at least the second letter. All right? Um, and in the first letter, he exhorted the Corinthians regarding fornication. And he also noted them about the collection. What was the collection? It was a collection of money that Paul was going to take back to Jerusalem. All right. Um, and then evidently he received some bad reports from Chloe, um, 1 Corinthians 1, 11, and Apollos, 1 Corinthians 16, 12, who got some information back to him about some things going on regarding the situation in Corinth. And on top of that, he received a letter from Corinth, from the Corinthian church, asking some questions. So how do we know that? Well, 1 Corinthians 7, 1, Paul says, Now concerning the things whereof you wrote me. And then he, first of all, he talks about the marriage issue. 1 Corinthians 7, the divorce issue. Um, he hits that, he hits um, giving, he hits tongues issue. Basically, 1 Corinthians 7, all the way through to the end, are Paul answering the questions that Corinth had asked him. They had asked him questions. So that's why he wrote 1 Corinthians um, and set it down. He wanted to deal with them with uh, the idea of factions and the pursuit of wisdom. Um, 1 Corinthians 2, what, what were the Greeks after? What was their big deal? Greeks. Wisdom, right? I mean, they, they wanted the latest, greatest, newest fad, you know, whatever it was. And uh, remember when Paul went to Athens, what did they argue with on Mars Hill all day long? Uh, what's the latest cool thing? What's the latest new idea? You know, what's the latest buzz out there? And uh, when Paul showed up, of course, they wanted to hear what, what did he have to say. You know, we haven't heard this guy before. Let's see if he's got some interesting spin on stuff. And Paul was doing fine until he got to the resurrection. <laughs> but uh, Greeks were given over to wisdom. And what did the Jews seek after? A sign. And Paul is trying to tell the Corinthians, you know, spirituality is not bound up in wisdom. It's bound up in a relationship. It's bound up in a relationship. And uh, the Corinthian church had gone off trying to incorporate a lot of the wisdom, so-called wisdom of their culture into their Christianity, and Paul had to deal with that. And he had to deal with the questions that they asked him. And we're going to see that as we work our way through 1 Corinthians. So um, basically, what does Paul deal with in the book? Well, first of all, he deals with the divisions in the church. He also has to deal with this guy living with his stepmother. Now, that's bad because Paul says, you know, even the pagans don't do that one yet. You know, now, now when the pagans haven't reached your level of sin as a Christian, that's pretty bad, isn't it? Yeah. So Paul has to deal with that. He has to uh, deal with the issue of them taking each other to court. First Corinthians 6. In those days, um, the way it worked is if you had a dispute with somebody... You could take them down to the to the city um, square and have your case heard. You know, if Jamie said something I didn't like and I wanted to sue him, I could haul him down there and dispute before the magistrate and get a get a, a maybe a monetary award. He would be fined or whatever. Um, and evidently, the Corinthians had started doing this. They started hauling each other down to court all the time. And Paul says, well, "That's a really a good Christian testimony, isn't it, for you to sue each other?" So he deals with that issue, taking each other to court. He says, you know, it's better off to be defrauded than to drag the name of the Lord in the mud. 
says, better off to take one on the chin than uh, to make Christ look bad. So he deals with that whole issue. Um, he needs to deal with issues, the, the burning issues of marriage and divorce. That was a real issue in that culture. Divorce and the state of marriage and divorce and family was worse in that probably as bad in that culture as it is today. Um, a lot of issues there, so he has to deal with that. He wants to deal with the issue of food offered to idols. That was a big deal. Should I eat the food that um, was offered to the idols? Because the way a lot of these uh, temples supported themselves is people come in with these offerings. They would offer them to the gods, and they would take the meat in the front door as an offering to God and take it out the back door and sell it at a reduced discounted price. That was a good place to go, you know, get a, get a roast for the dinner for Sunday or whatever. And uh, the big question was, can we eat meat that was offered to idols? I mean, this was a offering to some pagan deity. As a Christian, can I eat this? And some Christians said, have at it. You know, it's a good deal. And others said, no, I can't do that. And Paul has to deal with that issue. He has to deal with the issue of women in the church. Yeah. Um, the behavior of women in the church. All right. And um, we don't have that problem today, do we? Yes. Yeah, we do. We have that problem today. All right. And we're going to talk about that. Um, spiritual gifts is a big one. Um, that was a big issue. In fact, this is... This is the, 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 the place to go to find out all you want to know basically about what a spiritual gift is, how to use it, what, what they are, all of that. And we're going to do that in chapter 12, 13, and 14. We're going to look at spiritual gifts. And then um, chapter 15 is probably the great, greatest chapter in the Bible on the resurrection. And why is that such a big deal? The theology, the theology is there, but what issue are the Corinthians facing? Gnosticism. Gnosticism, and one of the basic roots of Gnosticism is what? Well, it's 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 called dualism. Remember that word? What's dualism? Matter is bad, spirit is good. Matter is evil, spirit is good. So why in the world would a spirit ever want to be resurrected? I mean, that was just like a that was a crisis in their thinking. And remember, how, where do you see that? Well, when Paul went to Athens, and he's given the discourse on Mars Hill, and then he talks about the resurrection of the dead. What happens? What immediately happens? Well, some mock. Some laugh. Some said, well, hear more of this matter. And a few people believed. But he was doing fine until he got to that point. Why? Because a major tenant, a, a major, how, how do I want to put it, a major worldview point of that society was Matter is evil, spirit is good. That permeated every level of that society, every bit of thinking. Okay? And it's one of those societal beliefs, all right, that was so deeply ingrained that anytime anybody said anything against it, people would just, they didn't know how to handle that. We have some of those today, right? I mean, one of them today is what you might want to call pluralism. You know, you do your thing, I'll do my thing, you're okay, I'm okay. And the greatest sin today is to stand up and say, you know, you're wrong. <clears throat> how dare you say that? What gives you the right to call somebody wrong? What gives you the right? You know, how, how can you ever say something like that? Um, that's permeated our society. You can go on Geraldo's show or, or whatever. Um, I don't even know who they are anymore, the talk shows. And you can say any screwball nutcase thing you want. You can talk about aliens in your toilet. You can talk about anything. 
And everybody, yeah, yeah, fine, yeah. And as soon as you stand up and say, you know, I know the answer to life and I have the reason, purpose, you know, they want to run you out on a rail, right? That's one of our, our things that are built in our society. Well, in those days, one of the major points built in that society, matter, evil, spirit, good. Therefore, in their mind, it didn't matter what you did with your physical body because it's evil anyways. And in fact, that had permeated the church. And remember Paul said, you know, I think in Philippians, the belly for food and food for the belly, but God will destroy both of them. Yeah, I think it's First Corinthians. And then even in Philippians, I think there's a there's a verse that hints at that um, where, where people say, you know, look, you know, my body, it's matters evil. My body's evil. It's incorrigible. So if I have sex with a prostitute all night and then I go home and I go to worship God the next day, that's perfectly fine. Because my spirit is good, but my body is evil. So it doesn't matter what my body does because I can't control it anyways. Now, do we deal with that today? Yes. Yeah, we do. There are people in all your churches that compartmentalize their life. They'll sing all the Jesus I Surrender Sunday morning. Monday morning, they're their own person. They do their own thing. They live their own life. They think nothing of, you know, it's shocking. You know, it's to a point now where it's hard to surprise me anymore about what people do. I had a guy that used to teach Moody with me at this church. Teaching through the book of Isaiah at the same time he had left his wife and was living with another woman. While he was teaching through the book of Isaiah. On the holiness of God. Now go figure that one out. And, you know, you, you ask somebody like that, you know, what are you thinking? Oh, you know, God will forgive me. Don't worry about it. I say, boy, God's got a lot more patience than I do, you know. But we compartmentalize it as well. And... And Paul has to deal with, with that issue there that, you know, Christianity encompasses the whole person. It's not just what you do with your spirit that matters. It's what you do with your body that matters, too. And you're going to see that as we go through the book of 1 Corinthians. Um, now, I'm not going to get into all of 2 Corinthians, but just in a nutshell, the reason... Second Corinthians was written as Paul had sent this letter back to them. And uh, evidently there was a great uproar in the church about Paul. Um, There's a lot of people that came in and accused him of all kinds of things. And Paul wrote a very severe letter it's called the severe letter. That'd be third book he wrote to Corinth. And um, he even mentions in second Corinthians that he wrote it with a heavy heart. And evidently the Corinthian church had accepted it. Um, they had dealt with those who were causing division and uh, repented of what they were doing. And then Paul wrote 2 Corinthians back basically as a, as a defense of his ministry. One of the things that you find in 2 Corinthians is Paul defends his ministry. It's one of those books where Paul says, you know, I really don't want to write about me. But um, he had to defend his ministry because he, here, here's the thing, if if. If you want to set yourself up as a as a um, as an expert or a leader in Corinth, what do you have to do? Hmm? I'm talking about the bad guys. If you want to come in and you want to take over the church and you want to set yourself up as the leader in that church, what do you need to do? 
and you show your credentials. And one way to do that is to either A, show your credentials, or how do you do it in politics today? You, you tell the other guy's a bum, right? I'm not as bad a bum as he is. He's a worse bum than I am. You know, you're, both of them are bums, but, you know, the one who can make the other guy look the worst is the one that gets elected, right? That's the way it usually works. I'm tongue-in-cheek there, but, you know, I mean, we see it today. The way, one of the ways to set yourself up as an expert is to tear down everybody else. So if you're going to come in as a false prophet and deal with, you know, try to take over the church of Corinth, who do you have to take down? Paul. And so Paul had to write 2 Corinthians to deal with that. Not because he wanted to toot his own horn, but because by destroying his ministry and destroying him, they were going to destroy the church. These were false prophets that had come in to try and destroy the church. And you know what? I've seen them come and go. Folks, I've seen them come into this church. And they try to tear down the leadership and they try to establish themselves as the experts. And Paul warned about them. He says, you know, from within, there's going to be some people that rise up to draw away the disciples and lead many astray. Um, Acts chapter 20, when he's talking to the Ephesian elders, he says, there's going to, even from within your midst, you're going to have these people come in. They're going to try to gather a following and try to draw people off into their own little, little, little group. And we see that in churches today. And the bigger the church, the more these things come along. And, and Paul had to deal with that. Paul was not trying to defend himself because he had some ego trip. That's not what Paul was trying to do. He was trying to defend his apostleship because if they destroyed his apostleship, they would destroy his, the credibility of his ministry. They would destroy the credibility of his message. And then what would you replace it with? False teaching. And that's what he was concerned about. Paul was not concerned about his own ego. His own ego he could have cared less about his own ego. All right. So that's basically the background of the book of First Corinthians. Any comments, questions on that before we actually start looking at the book? Ever find any pieces of uh, the unknown? No, they didn't. Um, it is interesting to note that um, that Clement wrote a couple of letters to Corinth. Um, Clement of Alexandria, and he was. Um, really early second century, that'd be like AD 110, somewhere around in there. Late late 90s, early 110s or whatever. And uh, there, are, there, are, there are some Bible scholars, even some um, church fathers, that considered his stuff to be canonical, Clement. He had some that were, very that were very close to being almost considered canonical. And they were written to Corinth. Their letters written to Corinth. This church was high maintenance. You, you ever have people that are high maintenance? You have a relationship that's high maintenance? You know, there are some people that are really easy to get along with. They're a lot of fun. Other people, you know, you just got to pour all kinds of energy and time into that. And, uh, you know, I know some acquaintances in my life. They're high maintenance, and I don't really want to be around them. Because, you know, I say the wrong thing, and they get all mad, and they're bent out of shape for two weeks. And, you know, that, that's, high, that's high stress. Corinth, Corinth was a high maintenance church. What you call that maintenance? What's that? What you just said. Like you said that uh, the person is, um, you have to put like energy into them to kind of. You're, you're always having to try to keep the feathers from being ruffled and keep the thing calm and try and, you know, you, you just can't be yourself. If you're yourself, you never know when they're going to, you know, blow up. You know, that high, that's high maintenance. Um, that's something new I learned. Yeah, that's high maintenance. 
And Corinth was a high maintenance church. They required a lot of attention. Um, I mean, they got two letters written to them. Um, Paul wrote, you know, when Paul wrote to the church at Philippians, you know, he was very, he just loved that church. You know, that was one of his favorite churches and some of the other churches he wrote too. And then you get Corinth and, you know, and he's just beating them up from beginning to the end almost, um, dealing with the issues in the church. Um, it was a high maintenance church, but you know what? They were, look where they were. Look what they had to deal with. You know, it was quite a, quite a place for them to be. Um, any other questions? We'll start uh, going through the book of 1 Corinthians. And again, we're going to take our time. If there's something you want to talk about, discuss, ask questions on, that's why we're here. We'll take whatever time it is you need. Um, okay. This week and uh, next week, we're going to get through the first three chapters. So. Okay. Yeah. Hope Lou's doing all right. Okay. My wife had surgery. We got to take care of him. So. Nothing serious. He's being a good husband. Yeah, being a good husband tonight. That's good. <laughs> okay, we'll see. You. All right. Um. First Corinthians chapter one verse one. Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother. In those days, they started out their letters who got who was writing them, which is sort of nice. You know who it is, and if you don't want to listen to him, you can crumple it up and throw it away before you have to read the whole thing. Um, Paul says, I'm called to be an apostle. What, what does he mean by that? Yeah, Paul did not, yeah, Paul did not take a, a, um, what do you want to call it, a job assessment exam. Or he did not, he, he did not take a, you know, a test to say, well, Paul, you know, we, we've got you down as a scholar, an apostle, or a, or a persecutor. You know, one of those jobs are going to fit you just right, you know. Paul was on his way to kill Christians when who showed up? Christ. And he said, Paul, you're in the ministry. Could Paul have said no? No. He couldn't have said no. Paul didn't choose it. In fact, Paul, that's the last thing Paul would have chose, right? But God chose him. And, and Paul says, you know, God called me to be an apostle. Now, this apostle here, we're all apostles in a sense, right? What is an apostle? A sent out one. Somebody who sent out. It comes from apostello, to send out. All right? Um, we're all sent out ones. But there's a particular class of apostle, which incorporated the 11 original apostles, minus, of course, Judas, adding Matthias, and then you have Paul. And one of the qualifications of the what we call the big A apostle is to be personally commissioned by Christ. Was Paul personally commissioned? Yeah, yeah Christ showed up to him and personally commissioned him to be a, an apostle. All right. And uh, Paul says, I was chose this by the will of God. It wasn't my will. It was God's will who chose me. And this and Sothenes, our brother, that's who was with him when he was writing this letter. All right, so Paul signed, he said, I'm writing this letter, and Sosthenes is here with me. Okay? Um, he could have been Paul's secretary. He could have been the one that actually pinned the letter. I mean, Paul, Paul could have written it himself, but Paul might have used him as a, as a what we call an amanuensis, a secretary who wrote the letter that was sent. 
All right. Um, we do know he was acquainted with Paul because in Acts 18, 12 through 17, he was beaten at the civil court. Remember, Sosthenes was taken and beaten. So evidently, Sosthenes was one of the leaders of the Corinthian church, and he was with Paul when he wrote this letter back to Corinth. All right. And, and uh, it says here, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called saints, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Now, this is interesting. What did Paul call these people? Saints. Saints. Now, what kind of people were they? You take one look at them and say, you know what? I can think of a lot of things to call them, but saints is not on the list. All right. They were not very saintly in their conduct. So how could Paul call them saints? They were believers, right? They were set apart. All right. Um, you know what it means to be called a saint. A saint is a is a called a, is a separated one. It's a separated one. Um, when you were saved, what were you separated from? You're separated from the penalty of sin, right? You're declared righteous. God looked at you and says, "You're." We all know you're not righteous. I'm going to declare you judicially before my bar. As far as the penalty of sin is concerned, you're righteous. In fact, you're as righteous as Christ is. So nothing can stick to you. Now, at that point, are you righteous in the practical sense? Of course not. Because we still sin, right? We still struggle with our flesh. All right? But... When we became a believer, as far as God is concerned, as far as the eternal perspective is, you're every bit as much seated in the heavenly places as you will ever be. That's a setting apart. You were set apart to God. And that's why he could call these probably some of the worst Christians on the planet at that point. He could call them saints because in God's mind, they were redeemed. Now, they weren't acting like saints, but they certainly were set apart. Well, they were unsanctified in the sense of their life, their practice. Okay, And that's the whole issue of sanctification. What does that mean? What does sanctification mean? Set apart. And it's a process, right? What's justification? That's an event. And, and by the way, that's right there. I just If you understand that, you understand why you're not a Catholic. Because a Catholic, justification is a process. That's Catholicism in a nutshell. It is a process. The Bible teaches justification is an event. What does it mean to be justified? Declared righteous. God says you're righteous. And that's not a process. That is an event. All right. Now, once that event happens, then comes the process of sanctification. And, you know, we've got the three aspects of sanctification. You have been sanctified in the sense that you were set apart to God at the moment of your salvation. You are being sanctified in the sense that hopefully you're getting a little better today. You're better today than you were yesterday. You're becoming more holy. You're becoming more Christ-like. That is a process. And then there's the ultimate sanctification when you die or when the Lord returns where you will be fully set apart from sin and you will be perfect. Glorification. 
So you have justification was an event, glorification is an event. In between, you have this process of sanctification. And that's the thing we're going through here. We're being sanctified. Hopefully, you're a little bit more sanctified today than you were a year ago. And if you're not, you need to worry about whether you're saved or not. Right? Because the God that saves you does what? He transforms you. It's not a worry. You, you don't sanctify yourself. You realize that. God sanctifies you as you do what? As you walk, as you obey, as you learn the scripture, you become more like Christ. You become more sanctified. That is a work of the Holy Spirit within you. Doesn't mean you don't do anything. Doesn't mean you don't have a role. Of course you have a role, right? But who enables you to do that? God does. God enables us to live the Christian life. He enables us to make the right choices. But we are in the process now, as we live our lives, we are in the process of being sanctified. But Paul can call them saints because they really were saints. They had been set apart to God. They're, they're sanctified in Christ Jesus, and they're called saints. Okay? He says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you, for the grace of God which is given to you by Jesus Christ. The grace of God that was given to them. Paul thanks God for this group of Christians. As bad as they were, he was thankful for them. And it says here, for the grace of God which was given to you. Now this is a very important concept. What is grace? Unmerited favor. Do you earn it? Do you deserve it? No, we don't deserve it. Do you merit it? No. Once you get it, can you pay for it? No. By definition, it is an act totally outside of anything you can do. Once you have it, can you get more of it? No. Okay. <laughs> and and so so in that case, who is the instigator of grace in your life? God is, not you. Um, all of you here know, those of you who took me before know, I'm about as Calvinistic as you can get because I'm stuck with what the Bible says. That's all. I don't understand it all, but you know what? When I read a verse like this, it says, you know, God gave you the grace. How am I going to interpret that? Yeah, I don't know how else to interpret it. You know, I don't know how else to interpret that. God granted them grace of his own free will. God was not coerced. He was not forced. He didn't have to do it. They didn't do anything to deserve it. God just gave it to them. And God gave me grace. I don't know why, but he did. And the only thing I can do is say thank you. I can't do anything more than that. I can't pay him back for it. You know, I, I can't earn it. I can't merit it. I can't. You can't. All you can do is just say, thank you, God, for, for giving me the grace that you have. And not only that, not only did he give them grace for salvation, but he also enriched them in everything by him in all utterance and all knowledge. Even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you so that you come short in no gift. What's he talking about there? He gave him grace for salvation. He also gave him grace for 
service, for functionality. You know, God doesn't just save you and walk away and leave you there, right? I mean, that's not the way God operates. It's like having a baby and bring him home and set him in front of the fridge and say, okay, kid, milk's in the fridge, bread's over there, have at it. Change your diapers. Diapers are over there, diaper pail over there, go for it, kid. You know, that's not the way God operates. The God that saves you is going to transform you. He's going to work within you. All right. And he's going to grant you the resources that you need to operate as a Christian. He's going to grant those to you. And what did God grant the Corinthian church? He granted them everything they needed to function as a church. In particular, what kind of gifts do you think he's talking about? Spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts. Now, we're going to talk really long about this in, in, in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. But the bottom line is this. Let's just think this a minute here. Why did God give the church gifts? To build up the church. So by definition, what should your spiritual gift do? Build it up. So somebody says, I have the gift of criticism. That's not a gift, right? That's not a spiritual gift. Gifts are given to edify, to build up, to encourage other believers. Well, why do ministers throw off so much? I, I, I watch so many ministers and they have this, this habit of uh, like beating you up. Uh, you know, in a service. So why does so many ministers do that? I don't know. They think they're serving God, I guess. They no, think it's they're not edifying. It's, it's there not comes a time, God. you know, there comes a time when when you have to take the board out to the to the congregation, maybe. But do you think Christ did that? How, how did Christ no. treat people? He didn't do that. Who did he bash? Who did he hit upside the head? The religious, religious muckety-mucks. You know, the rest of the people he didn't. But the Pharisees, they came along, got out of his board and started whacking at him, right? Mm -hmm. Why? Because they didn't need anybody. They didn't need help. They did. They knew it all. Um, this, this is the thing to understand. This will really help you sort out a lot of the confusion about spiritual gifts. They're not given for your benefit. Right. It's not for you. It's for the church. It's for others. My gift of teaching, who does it benefit? Me? No. Uh, it benefits me in a reflective sense. But my gift of teaching was not given so I could sit and look in the mirror and talk, talk to myself all day long. Right? We know what your gift is. I know what my gift is. Does most people in the church know what they give? <clears throat> I think they're confused about it, but I think it's really easy to find out what your gift is. It's confused because you don't know, um, like I said, the badgering that goes on in churches today. So you don't know really where what you have. I think that it was natural. It's really easy to find your spiritual gift. It's not hard. It, it doesn't take a. You don't need to take spiritual gifts assessment. Does everybody have one? Absolutely, every Christian has one. If you don't have a spiritual gift, you're not a Christian. God has given you a spiritual gift. Yeah. And you know how here's how you find your spiritual gift. It's really easy. 
Pretend your pastor comes up to you and says, you can have any ministry in the church you want. You can do anything in this church that you want to do. What would you really like doing? What would give you the greatest joy and the greatest sense of fulfillment? And that's your gift. You know, we got this idea that my spiritual gift is something I'm going to hate doing. I can't stand it. It's going to be something that, you know, i, I got to suffer exercising. Now, look, you know, that's not the way God gifted you. God gave you a gift that when you exercise that spiritual gift, you sense the greatest amount of joy, the greatest amount of, of, um, of fulfillment. And not only that, but you can see how that gift benefits others. That's your gift. It, it, it's not hard to figure out what your gift is. It really is not. Ask yourself, what would you like to do? What would you enjoy doing? Not, not what would give you the greatest visibility or whatever. You know, that's not, that's not it. What would you have the most fun and the most joy and the most fulfillment in doing? And that's going to be pretty, that's going to be doggone close to what your gift is. Because that's how God wired you. That's how God made you. You think God wants you to exercise your spiritual gift and grumble and gripe and whine the whole way? No. It's going to be something you enjoy doing. And it's going to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. And when you exercise that gift, other people are going to be encouraged and built up. You know, if you're exercising your spiritual gift and everybody's being torn down, that's not your gift. Find out what, what do you do that encourages other people? What do you do that helps other people? That, that, that contributes positively to the Christian life of other people. That's what a spiritual gift is for. And God is, Paul is telling the Corinthian church, you know what? You all don't lack any of those. God has richly blessed the, you, you, this church. God has richly blessed your church with everything that you all need. You come behind in no spiritual gift. Later on, you say, you come behind in no spiritual gift. And isn't that the way God operates? You know, we think God's up there and, you know, he's sort of like a stingy miser, you know, just doling out, you know, begrudgingly every little blessing. You know, I, I shouldn't be giving you that, you know, like a crotchety old guy, you know, just not wanting to. God's not dying to operate that way. God's lavish. God, you know, God gives richly. You know, he's not going to hold back. And when it comes to the building up of the body of Christ, he gives richly everything that you need. And he says, not only that, you're eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation, or apocalypto, the unveiling. What's that? The return of Christ. Now, let me ask a question. Does the average American in the average American church look longingly towards the return of Christ? No. No, we don't. No. Why? Why do you think that's the case? It's been a long time, but... Oh, good night. You know, we've got all, you know, I got to make it to the football game this weekend. and help you doesn't come before the football game. You know, our life, and you know what, quite honestly, folks, we've got it pretty good down here, don't we? All of us. You know, and, and the idea of Christ coming back, sort of messing that up. I mean, you know, we don't, we just, we don't look forward to that like I think we should. And it's supposed to be better. Yeah. It's better. Yeah, there's nothing to compare to it. You know, I, I found myself just this week praying, and said, "You know, Father, if you come, if you if you came back tonight, you wouldn't mess up any of my plans." 
I think I think the church has always had that. We're supposed to have that. And if you're really being persecuted and life's pretty bad, what are you going to look forward to? Yeah, what do you have the hope in? Now, in America, we don't have that, right? We've got it too good down here. Who's looking for the Lord to come back? Not a lot of Christians. And yet, isn't that our blessed hope? You know? Um, look, this church was looking forward to the Lord coming back. They, they were eagerly, it says here, they were eagerly awaiting. It's like a kid waiting for Christmas Day, you know, just... You know, you can't wait, you know, to run down the stairs and jump on your parents and haul them in there and wrap those, get those presents and rip them open. And yet, yet, you know, today, the average Christian is not living expectantly for the Lord's return. Or we're too, you know, that that's one hand. On the other hand, we're so wrapped up in the daily events. You know, every time we turn around, that's enough. Oh, he's going to be here today. Or he's going to be here tomorrow. Or I got the date now. I know when he's going to come back. I figured it out. I got it. I decoded the, the secret in the Bible. I know what Jesus didn't even know. I got the time and the date set. Um, look, we need to eagerly await expectantly, but not go that far. You know, I mean, if you if you had all if you if you had a nickel for every book that was written purportedly giving the timing and date of the second coming, we'd all be multimillionaires. Um, it's always been there. And it says here, who will also confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. What's that talking about? Who will confirm you to the end? That's the doctrine, what we call the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. What's the perseverance of the saints mean? And why will they persevere to the end? Because God's going to make sure they persevere to the end. You understand that? Your salvation does not depend on you hanging on to God. It depends on God hanging on to you. But if God is hanging on to you, what will you do? You'll hang on to him because he's helping you hang on to him. It's God. It's God who's doing this. It's, and, and from the human perspective, from the purely human perspective, as we look around, how do we know someone's a Christian? And what, ha what will happen over their life? And they will stay with it, right? They won't fall away. They won't leave. That's a paradox. And there's going to be a, a few of these you hit in, in the scripture. In Hebrews, there's one. You know, you're going to be confirmed to the day if you stay faithful and say, well, now, wait a minute. Is that, does that mean I, it depends on me hanging on? No. God's going to hang on to you, but how do you know you're hanging on? How do you know you're in? Because you're going to hang on, right? Right. But who's really doing the hanging on? He's hanging on. Do you understand what's going on there? Why do I love God? Because he loves you first. Right. Why am I going to be able to hang on? Because he's hanging on to me first. It's God who's hanging on to me. And that's what Paul is saying here. Not only did God save you, he's going to confirm you all the way to the end. And you're not going to fall away. He's going to be able to preserve you to the end. So that you may be blameless. Wow. Now, were these birds blameless here? 
Not at all, were they? They were a pretty rotten bunch. But you know, in the end, we're all going to reach there, right? I like the way John MacArthur said, he said, why should I worry myself trying to make you all perfect when God's going to do that at the end anyways? You know, it doesn't mean you don't want to encourage people to be godly and holy and righteous, but you know what? No matter how, no matter how much you encourage somebody, you know, they're going to still fail, but what's it say here in the end, what will happen? They will be preserved blameless before God. God will preserve them. That's select. And God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. God is faithful. That's, that's, that's something to really grasp. God is faithful. I may not, I may fail, will I? I'm going to foul up. I'm going to, there's going to be times when I'm unfaithful. But you know what? No matter what happens, God is faithful. He will hang on to me. And it doesn't depend on me. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't it great to know that your salvation does not depend on you hanging on? Because if it depends on you hanging on, we're all toast, aren't we? <laughs> we're never going to make it. We'll let go. That's it. God's got us. God's holding us. And we can rest assured that what he started... We'll finish right mm -hmm. Romans chapter 8 those he foreknew he predestined foreknow there does not mean he knew beforehand it means he chose beforehand he predestined those predestined he did what he called those he called he justified those he justified he glorified folks God did not ordain your salvation he ordained your glorification and your salvation is a step in the process. In eternity past, God chose you to be with him in eternity future. You ever think about that? Mm -hmm. He didn't choose you to get saved. And then, well, okay, you're saved now. You're Now, if you don't mess it up, you'll make it. <laughs> and it didn't say some who got justified got glorified. And some of the called ones got justified. And some of those that were predestinated, they got called. No. It's an unbroken chain. It started in eternity past with God's selection. It's going to end eternity future with our glorification. Along the way, we have justification. We have sanctification. We have this life. But you know what? It's assured. And why is it assured? Because God is going to hold on. And nothing I do is going to be able to shatter His grip on me. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.